You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals podcast looking back at the week's main news in Sweden. We're recording this on Thursday the 5th of May. Later on this week's show, we're going to look at Russian anti-Swedish propaganda and what Sweden can do to combat it. We'll get some expert insights on that from James Pamant, an associate professor from Lund University who specializes in the study of disinformation. Before that, we'll also briefly discuss what else is happening in Sweden at the moment, including the latest updates on the NATO question, how last week's interest rate hike is going to affect housing prices, and we'll welcome the spring with a seasonal word of the day. I'm Paul O'Mahony and I'm joined for today's podcast by James Savage here in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Morning. Hello. Hello. Morning. And we spoke um, last week about the Volboy bonfires, which were held across the country over the weekend to celebrate the arrival of spring. And now that we've left the winter behind us, Becky, you've written an article in uh, the Locals Word of the Day series about vår yra. Can you tell us what uh, the word means? Yeah, so um, vår is the word for spring. The word ur means like to be dizzy. And yra is kind of like a giddy full dizziness, joyfulness. So vår ura is kind of like the joys of spring, but you can also you can have different kinds of ura. You can have seger ura if your football team wins a match and you're like giddy with joy about the fact that you've won. But then vår ura can also be like a bit like a school fete or a school festival, like a fundraising activity for a school where you have little activities for the kids and you kind of have a loppis, a flea market. I see them as kind of like... Okay, Swedes, you can come out of hibernation now. The sun's out. Put your coats away. Get your vorjacka. Take your scarf off. Feel the sun on your skin, that kind of stuff. I, I feel like that's kind of the feeling of vorura. And then you, you also see it in shops. You'll see it as kind of like to a, announce a spring sale. They say, oh, vorura, we've gone spring crazy. Everything's on sale, half price. Do you still have an SAD lamp, James? You used to have one of those. No, I think my SAD is gone. I don't know whether it's just me getting older. Maybe we've, we've been here so long. Maybe we should explain what SAD is. Oh, right. SAD, seasonal affective disorder. So the winter blues, when it's too dark, you get depressed. I don't know whether it's just me getting older and slightly more chilled or whether it's me just getting used to Swedish darkness and learning to appreciate it in another way but I no longer find that the winter darkness makes me sad. I used to love those days when you didn't come into the office because I would nick your SAD lamp. (laughs) I did used to have a massive SAD lamp on my desk at the office and sit there in the morning switch it on and be like oh fuck (laughs) give me light. Now the NATO debate in Sweden is getting closer to boiling point. There are new stories about this more or less every day and We're just going to run through some of the main developments and the key dates to watch out for in the weeks and months to come. A Russian reconnaissance plane was spotted flying in Swedish airspace a few days ago. What was it doing there and how did Sweden respond, Richard? Well, it was flying around the Danish island of Bornholm and it just briefly crossed over into Swedish territory 
which normally maybe wouldn't be such an enormous transgression. It wasn't like, you know, some of the more shocking ones where they were, you know, in, in fighter bombing formation going towards Scotland, which has happened in the past. But in the sort of tense security climate there is right now, there was an immediate reaction from Sweden. And I think the, the, the Russian ambassador was called in. And I mean, this one, it's hard to say. Everyone's waiting for these violations of Swedish airspace to happen as, as a sort of kind of a way of expressing Russia's unhappiness with the process of Sweden joining NATO. But this could almost be a mistake, actually. From what I've read, it seems to have just briefly touched in and then come out again. But obviously, the Swedish defence minister was quickly out and said, you know, this is totally unacceptable to violate Swedish airspace, especially in such a tense security climate. Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson and her Finnish counterpart Sanna Marin were in Berlin during the week. They were there to talk with Ulrich Scholz about, the, about their NATO application. Wait, their NATO application? Is it decided? <laughs> no, it wasn't. But about their prospective NATO application, about the potential NATO applications, and to particularly talk through whether they could count on Germany's support to join NATO. I think it was kind of a given in the first place. Obviously, we don't know exactly what went on behind closed doors, but the outcome was that Scholz said that they could count on Germany's full support to join NATO. I mean, that's not really surprising, given um, given Germany and uh, Finland and Sweden are very close countries politically and geographically. And um, if, if, if Germany was going to put the kibosh on Sweden joining or Finland joining NATO, then they, they would, wouldn't have a chance at all. But it's probably what was also going on behind the scenes was discussions about how Germany could support getting other countries on board as well. Of course, you know, there's no guarantee in these unanimity for Sweden and Finland to join NATO. We've seen the president of Croatia, for example, saying that, well, I'm not, not entirely convinced that I want Croatia to support Finland and Sweden joining NATO. He wants some concessions related to Bosnia. You know, and there might be other countries, thinking Hungary and, and others, who might try and make things difficult or, or make demands. So, so I imagine there was some of that going on behind the scenes. But of course, the problem with security policy is that, that you don't really know what's been said behind the scenes. Don't forget to follow Sweden in Focus in your podcast app to get a reminder as soon as we publish an episode. And if you like the podcast, please leave a rating or submit a review. And the Swedish opposition wants Parliament to have a role in the decision on whether to join NATO. What's all that about, Becky? So the, the argument from the opposition is that it's such a big decision to be made on behalf of the whole country. So it is unfair for just one ruling party to decide on it. Which, if I'm going to be honest, I think it, it's kind of fair to say that because it's kind of just a quirk of history that it ended up being the Social Democrats that were in power now. So it makes sense that you kind of get all of the elected representatives of Sweden to kind of decide on whether they think it's a good idea or not. And I think also they want to have a little bit of a say in the situation. Those who are against NATO maybe want to say, hey, we don't approve of this, kind of make a stand on that. So I think a lot of it is just being able to kind of, yeah, all the different parties can kind of put their views forward, especially with it being an election year. They can kind of make a stand and say, OK, well, we approve of this. We don't approve of this. Take, you know, for those parties that have long been in favour of NATO, like the Liberals and the Moderates, to take some of the credit for it as well. Maybe also, depending a little bit on what the Social Democrats say about the exact nature of Sweden's application, like, for instance, will they try and demand a stipulation that there will be no NATO forces based on Swedish soil? And would the other parties have something to say about that? You know, there could be some attempts to, you know, to, to put another another aspect of this to try and sort of perhaps for specifically the moderates and the liberals to say, well, actually, we're still more pro-NATO than the Social Democrats. So the Social Democrats are key to all this happening as the party of government at the moment. The opposition parties, the opposition right-wing parties are in favour of joining 
NATO, but the Social Democrats' women's organisation, Esk Finnur, has reportedly voted against joining NATO, according to the Svenska Dagbladet newspaper. How is that going to affect the government's thinking on this, James? Hard to tell, but obviously it makes it somewhat harder for the government if it eventually decides that it wants to join NATO. You know, in a sense, it would be easier if the whole process went through with acclamation. But that was probably never going to be the case in some senses. In another sense, it might be helpful for the government to be able to point to the fact that we've had a proper debate. Both sides have been heard. You've now got a very strong segment of the party, an important segment of the party coming out and and, and sort of standing up for those historical values that this particular part of the party, but also the party as a whole has represented in the past. Annika Strandhelder, the chair of Esquinor, uh, the women's movement, and, and she's also minister, minister for climate and environment. She said, we in the women's movement, we've always been about peace, disarmament, detente, military non-alignment. She, she made it clear that she wasn't going to, if the decision went the other way, which it looks like it will, that she's not going to put a, um, a spanner in the work. She's not going to go off in a huff or anything. She said that she will support whatever line the party eventually decides to follow. So this decision is closing in now and it's coming up quite quickly, maybe sooner than was initially planned. What do we know about that, Becky? Um, when, when are we going to get a yay or less likely a nay on whether Sweden will join NATO? So they were originally going to be having a meeting on the 24th, which is potentially when the Social Democrats would have made their party decision on whether they should join NATO. And they announced yesterday, so that's Wednesday, that they're going to bring that forward to May the 15th. It seems unlikely that Sweden and Finland won't submit an application more or less at the same time. Richard, you spoke to the Swedish Defence University's Jakob Vesberg about what it would mean for Sweden if Finland went in alone and Sweden stayed out of NATO. What did he tell you? It was actually surprisingly interesting because from the beginning of the debate, there's been people have said, oh, you know, Sweden and Finland must go in together and, you know, it would be a disaster if Finland went in alone and Sweden wasn't part of it. And, and I just kind of thought that I didn't really understand why that was. So I thought I would find somebody who is an expert in this, which Jakob Vesperi is. And it was really interesting, actually. And, and I think perhaps the most interesting thing that I hadn't really taken on board is that if Finland does join NATO, then it's not that it might not come to Sweden's support if Sweden is attacked. It's that it might not even be able to, that its first loyalty under the NATO treaty would be to NATO. And if NATO doesn't want to get involved in a conflict on behalf of a non-NATO country, then Finland might not be able to come to Sweden's aid. And given that since 2014 and before that, the defence alliance with Finland has been pretty much the strongest part of Sweden's defence. It's like since the invasion of Crimea, that's where they've really developed it. And they've developed joint battle groups and they've trained together enormously and they've signed treaties that mean that Finnish fighter jets can operate from Swedish air bases and they've also you know set up all of the equipment to enable them to do this and the two armed forces are really well aligned a lot of good work's been done on that and that will all go out the window because suddenly Sweden can't rely on Finland coming to its defense at least not until NATO gives the okay and according to Jakob Vesperi, Denmark and Norway have always told the Swedes, sorry, mate, you know, if you get attacked, we can't do anything unless NATO gives us the all clear. So Sweden knows that Finland won't be able to. It's not like it's it's a suspicion. It, it, it's something that's mm. completely clear. And that's particularly important in the early stages of an attack, because what, what he was saying is that NATO will eventually, hopefully, fingers crossed, come to their support. But it's going to take at least 48 hours 
or longer for NATO to do that. So I think a lot of the defence planning between Finland and Sweden has been focused on the early stages of an attack. Because they're both non-aligned, they don't need to get anyone else's okay to to, to, to act. It can Mm. happen immediately. Whereas as soon as you're in NATO, you're having to uh, deal with other countries and with NATO's main command. This podcast is free to listen to, but if you like what you hear and are not yet a member of the local, please consider joining. By subscribing, you get the latest news from Sweden that impacts you, essential practical information and advice on life in Sweden, and unrestricted access to all editions of The Local. Please check out our membership offer at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer to find out more. While we were recording the podcast last week, the uh, Swedish Central Bank announced that it was raising interest rates above zero for the first time in nearly eight years in a bid to tackle inflation. And the Riksbank expects to hike the rate to just under 2% over the next three years. So we thought we'd take a look at what this will mean for the housing market in Sweden. So for starters, are property prices likely to nosedive? James? If you look at house prices in Sweden, they've risen enormously over the past couple of decades, really. I mean, they've been rising year on year on year on year. And low interest rates have been a very big part of that. But, you know, what will happen now? There's also There are also other factors involved. There's huge demand, particularly in the large cities, demographic changes, people moving from place to place. Um, so there, there are more factors than just interest rates. But Finansinspekunen, which is the Swedish financial supervisory authority, has said that with a 1% increase in interest rates this year and a 0.5% increase next year, it could lead to the price of houses falling by about 10% and apartments, Bustasretter, falling very, very slightly, they say. That's their main scenario one. But then they also point to other factors in the economy that on top of interest rates could have an effect. So we've got other things like rising electricity prices and um, perhaps a decline in house buying as well. And in that scenario, prices could fall by as much as 30%, which is really, you know, quite significant. So there are circumstances and these are not, these are circumstances that we are seeing becoming reality, really, where um, where, where prices could, un- in, the, in their modelling, fall by as much as 30%. Yeah, so as you said, households in Sweden are already feeling the pinch. And are we seeing any signs that this is already being reflected on the housing market, Richard? Yeah, well, I think in the most recent monthly figures, the the sort of overall market dipped really slightly, I think less than 1%, so 0.8% or something. But what was interesting was that in the Greater Malmo and Greater Stockholm, which are some of the areas where the prices, especially Greater Stockholm, where prices have gone up the most in the last five years, it, it was down 3%. On the same month last, uh, I th- actually I think it was month on month on February, and and that's one of the biggest falls that I think there's been in the last few years. I mean, the last over the pandemic, everyone thought house prices were going to fall, and then they and then they didn't. They just carried on mm. rising regardless, and actually I think rose more than they had in the previous years. But I uh, I think that that three percent drop is the first sign that it is starting to turn. I mean, in our in our house, I mean, I was amazed. We bought this um, little plot in the countryside. And the person next to us just sold theirs, which is just a scrub of bit of scrub and forest. And it went for 700,000, which, you know, not maybe like only five years ago, you could buy a whole summer house for that in the same area. So I, I think people still are still willing to pay top dollar, I think, to get what they want. But I wonder whether it's on the turn. Right. And is the spectre of rising interest rates affecting um, your own lives or plans for the future in any way? Yeah, I mean, we have a one-bedroom apartment that I'm sharing with my husband and my two-year-old daughter, so it would be really nice to buy something a little bit bigger. And now I'm kind of thinking, 
should we be waiting? Should we rent something? Maybe not the best time to go and buy a house. Like it, it, It's definitely something that's making me think about the future with regards to my family. I mean, we own we own our Bolstadsrit, but it's an apartment, and yeah, hopefully we, ha- we won't lose that much on the price of the apartment, but it's making me think twice about whether we should move into another apartment or move into a villa, like a detached house. For people like me, sort of, you know, a bit older, in the middle of a of what they, they call a Bustas carrière in Sweden, a house-buying career. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's perhaps less important. I mean, you've, at my kind of age, you've often got a bit more equity in your house. You've, you've been building up equity over, over a large number of years. You're not in this um, position where you could end up with negative equity with your, with your loans being worth more than, than your apartment. And that's the real danger that, you know, there's people who've bought more recently, you know, with high loans have, have done. Um, I've been lucky. I've fixed my interest rates. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to be affected by rising interest rates for a couple of years. But, you know, you're still looking ahead and you're thinking, well, how is this going to affect me? You know, it's possible, actually, you know, for, for someone who has a bit of equity in a, in a house already and isn't desperately sensitive to slightly higher interest rates, it could even have a beneficial effect because what it means is that the, the, the price of your next house won't be that much higher than it would have been and, 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 the, and the amount you would have to borrow to, to buy somewhere bigger will be lower. So it can affect people in very different ways depending on the, the situation and the you know, stage you're at in your life. Now this week, Sweden has seen Russian propaganda in action by way of a much-talked-about poster campaign at bus stops near the Swedish embassy in Moscow. On one poster that was shared widely on social media in Sweden, three of the country's best-known figures, including the avowedly anti-Nazi children's book author Astrid Lindgren, were alleged to have supported Nazi Germany. The main text on the poster reads, We are against Nazism, but they are not, with the word we styled as a Russian flag and they depicting Sweden's flag. The other two Swedes on the poster are the iconic film director Ingmar Bergman and IKEA founder Ingvar Kamprad, both of whom did in fact support Hitler in younger years, a fact they both said they deeply regretted later in life. So as so often in Putin's propaganda, there's a grain of truth in the message that's distorted beyond recognition. In this case, to feed the outrageous lie that democratic countries like Sweden are somehow Nazi supporters, a lie Putin also used in Ukraine to justify the full-scale invasion. I spoke earlier to James Pamant, Associate Professor at the Department of Strategic Communications at Lund University and an advisor for governments on disinformation to find out what Sweden does at an official level to combat this kind of Russian propaganda. Let's listen now to what he had to say and then we'll come back to the studio to discuss the media's role in all this and what we can learn from reading Astrid Lindgren's books and Ingmar Bergman's autobiography. So what does Sweden do at an official level to combat Russian propaganda? Sweden has lots of different tools that it can use. You know, you've probably heard about the new agency, the the Psychological Defence Agency. Yep. That, that's kind of the latest of these, although it builds on, you know, a department that, that already existed. Uh, but it, it's kind of signals that they're expanding this work and developing um, upon their tools and, and, and capabilities. Uh, but then they also have, you know, the foreign ministries, obviously, uh, looking very carefully at what's what people are saying abroad, the, the embassies you know, are active on Twitter. They 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 they're following what people are saying, sometimes correcting them. Um, the Swedish Institute um, monitors what's being said about Sweden abroad in in several different languages, and they do a lot of fact checking, like correcting uh, misconceptions um, where you know where there are facts that they can show. To correct it, and then Sweden also collaborates with lots of partners, so they have yeah. a 
uh, a couple of secondes at the European External Action Service working uh, to counter Russian disinformation there. You may have heard of e-versus disinfo, uh, which is one of their, yeah. their kind of updates that comes every couple of weeks. So with the NATO Strategic Communication Centre of Excellence in Riga, uh, where they also collaborate. Um, and then there's lots of collaborations with research, with NGO partners, you know, trying to build media literacy, uh, develop training, um, raise awareness. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole host of things across the board. And it's not just targeting Russian propaganda, but, it, but any uh, foreign propaganda that's trying to influence yeah. Swedish public, Swedish debate. So it sounds like there's, there's a lot going on in a lot of different places, but is it, is it enough? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think... You know, it's really important to keep the public aware of what's happening, because at the end of the day, you can create all of these institutions, but you need people to, to you know, who are, who are on social media, who are reading the news, uh, to have kind of critical opinions mm. and to uh, recognize disinformation or propaganda when they see it. It's more than just running a campaign or, you know, telling them once. It's, it's really a case of keep it, keeping the drumbeat going. You've you've spoken elsewhere about the practice of pre-bunking rather than debunking. Can you explain briefly to listeners what that means? Yeah, so pre-bunking um, comes from research on health misinformation and climate misinformation, uh, and it's psychologists who have reached quite quite strong consensus that if you go out with certain messages before people are exposed to the false information, they're more prepared for it. So, for example, yeah. Um, if you're, if you know people are going to be exposed to anti-vaxxer messages, as we knew two years ago, early on in the coronavirus pandemic, you know you can go out early and and warn people or prepare them for certain certain um, messages that they might receive, give them the facts, and hopefully it empowers them to make more sensible decisions. Yeah. Is it something that's been used um, by Sweden? Um, not that I can think of. You know, you could argue that an awareness raising campaign is in a way a, an attempt to pre-bunk uh, because you're making people aware, aware of something that you, th- you think might might come uh, and maybe making them familiar with certain narratives or certain falsehoods that you're likely to see in the disinformation. So from that perspective, yes, but I don't think it's it's used particularly extensively. Do you think with the, the case this week of a poster campaign in Moscow identifying certain Swedes as, you know, having sort of approved of the Nazis and and supported the Nazis. Is that something that could have been predicted and might have been an opportunity for pre-bunking, given that this is the argument Russia used for invading Ukraine, that they were denazifying? So at the moment, in the Russian sense, Nazi seems to refer to anyone who doesn't agree with Russia. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's reasonably predictable now. I think we've, we've established how they're using it and what they mean. I think the target group for this particular campaign, well, actually, there were there, there are two target groups. Mm. One, I think that the campaign was a response to the campaign that, that a law company, a law firm did in yeah. Stockholm early on in the war. And I think it, it, it's quite interesting that it's taken them two months to, to come up with this response, uh, which says something about the state of their propaganda system at the moment but in terms of the real target audience is you know okay that's a message to swedish decision makers that we, we you know we're following what's happening in sweden and we'll get you back but really the target is muscovites right it's it's the russian population and given the way that the communications 
situation has changed with the ban on on much social media within Russia, it would be very difficult for Sweden to pre-bunk this because it would mean, you know, somehow going out to the Russian people directly and and telling them we're not Nazis. And I don't think that's something that would that would be a kind of credible um, move to make. So I, I don't think it was really possible to pre-bunk that 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 particular campaign. Um, although it may have been fairly predictable that some kind of response would come after mm. what happened in Stockholm. In general, what does uh, Russian propaganda about Sweden look like? I mean, so so on the narrative level, you know, they they'll tell you that Sweden is a failing country. Um, they like to exaggerate the social problems that 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 genuinely do exist, but they'll make them seem like there's some kind of a constant crisis um, that that the problem is 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 bigger than it really is. And often, you know, these narratives will try to turn the strengths of Swedish society into weaknesses. So things that we see as strengths for for a, a strong liberal democracy, equality, LGBT rights, uh, freedom of debate. These are all things that they're trying to turn into into weaknesses. That was James Pamant. And switching focus a little bit, how much of a challenge is it for the media to report on an influence campaign like this without amplifying the Kremlin's message? James? Yeah, it it is hard. I mean, it depends a little bit um, as well on what the Kremlin's uh, aims are with with a campaign like this. Is this aimed at the Russian public or is it aimed at the Swedish public? Now, if it is aimed at the Swedish public and you know there are there are those who argue that to an extent it might be that you know the idea is that the Swedes will see this circulate it in social media and say oh look the Russians have got their have got their eyes on us and therefore what might make some people more apprehensive about for instance supporting joining NATO or might somehow affect in other ways how how Sweden relates to NATO and there is always in that sense there is a danger of amplifying Russian propaganda i think in this case though it becomes incumbent upon the media to put this in a certain kind of context to try and understand what the motivations are behind it and also to 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 kind of debunk it and to an extent and to an extent you know ridicule those parts of it that are absurd and, and much of much of much of what is in this this campaign was was patently absurd so you can't not report on it you you have to contextualize it and you have to put it right where it is wrong and there's not much else you can do. The fact that Russia is saying this right now is not insignificant, but we have to try and take it for what it is. I think the whole contextualising is really important. And also, I think if you avoid talking about it at all, it can also make it seem like you agree with what's being said if you don't try and debunk it. Like If you don't do anything to kind of say, OK, well, it's not actually like this. And that kind of sets Sweden up for a situation where Russia can say, look, they're not even trying to deny it. They are all Nazis. So I definitely think it's a it's it's a difficult kind of balance there that you don't want to just keep spreading propaganda, but you also have to kind of say, well, it's not like this, and so this is why it's not like this, and this is why what they're saying is ridiculous. I think it's quite similar to how to respond to someone like um, the Danish extremist Rasmus Paladam with his sort of Quran burning. I mean, the best thing to do if the media could kind of agree to it would just be to not report on it at all. Just give him complete media silence, and then he would go back. and And it's a similar thing with Russia. If we, if we, if no one reported on it at all, then it would be a complete failure of a propaganda campaign. It's only because it gets reported that it has an impact on anybody. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's it's really difficult to do. Yeah, um, I mean, in this situation, it had kind of gone viral on Twitter, and then news organisations started reporting on it. And I think that was because people were starting to say what's this reports on Twitter, why aren't you saying anything about it? Rather than they'd picked it up and were put plastering all over the front pages. But also from a journalistic point of view, it's, it's kind of like a sugar rush. You, you, you know it, it's too good to resist. 
you know, oh, you know, Astrid Lindgren is a Nazi. It's got everything. It's got sort of colourful figures. It's it's very hard not to report on it because it's a good story and it's been designed to be a good story. So you are complicit, I think, if you're not careful. You are a bit, but at the same time, you know, we live in a free society. That's kind of what we're defending. And that means that you report on stuff because it's interesting. And that does make it very difficult in these situations. You know, you are in a way compromised, but the way that you the way that you combat that is not to self-censor. It is to contextualize, it's to talk about it in an open way and to and to make sure that you don't sort of blow it out of proportion and make sure that people can understand it in its in, in its proper context. So I think that's all you can do. I think if we end up in a position where we as journalists are saying, well, we're not going to report on that, even though it's interesting and relevant and true, because it might somehow help Putin, we end up in, in, in actually, actually in the long term helping him even more by making our societies less open and less free. But it's, it's, how, you, it's how you do it, not, not whether mm. you do it. The Swedish media has a lot more of a sense of social responsibility. Like a Swedish editor will think, well, if we do this, it will alarm the population, so we must stop doing this. Or if we do this, it will help Putin. And they will then self-censor in order to achieve a sort of social good that they think is another responsibility, whereas I think a British journalist doesn't really have a sense of social responsibility. You see your role is much more compartmentalised. Your role is to make things that are interesting, entertaining, and will enlighten the reader and entertain them. And, And you don't tend to see yourself as having a social role. I think there are merits and drawbacks to both approaches. I mean, and they're kind of kind of two sides of the same extreme in democracies in a way. I mean, there's the Swedish, you know, kind of quite extreme self-censorship on certain on certain issues that we've seen in, in terms of particularly on reporting on crime, on, on identifying people, mm. for instance, when you're reporting on crime. And the British uh, sort of totally neutral or just like, you know, we'll report on whatever we like and we'll put all the facts out there as long as they're not actually defamatory. They are kind of two kind of extremes in, 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 in sort of democratic country reporting on things. And I think there's, there are downsides to both. I think, you know, that you could do with a bit more social responsibility in, U, in UK reporting, but I think you could also do with a um, bit more transparency and being a bit less self-censoring in, in, some, in some Swedish reporting. But I think Swedish reporting has moved on quite a lot. And I think to an extent, British reporting has after in many, many decades of scandal. So maybe we're finding a happy medium moving closer to each other. Uh, Swedes really scoffed at the idea that Astrid Lindgren was a supporter of the Nazis and with with good reason, Richard, right? Yeah, I mean, she was, especially when she became this kind of folk share public treasure in the kind of 70s and the 80s, then she was very outspoken that all of her books had this underlying message that was anti-fascist and anti, kind of anti-authority, which I think if you look at a character like Pippi Longstocking, it is kind of true. I mean, whenever she comes against an authority figure, like a school teacher or a police officer, she sort of pokes sort of fun at them. And I mean, there's even one scene where she takes on someone called Starker Adolf, who's this kind of... Strongest man in the world. Strongest man in the world, a circus strongman, who's this kind of clown-like strongman figure. And I think, I, I don't think it's an accident that he's called Adolf. I think she is sort of saying... She's she's cocking a thumb at a misuse of power, this kind of strongman um, dictator pose. And and if you read her war diaries, like the the, the quote from Astrid Lindgren, which was uh, on the the post in Moscow, was, and I would rather say Heil Hitler for the rest of my life than have the Russians on top of this. I can't think of anything so awful. And it was at the time when I think the Russians were invading Finland, and she thought, wow, God, if we if we if we become under the Soviet 
it would be atrocious. And, you know, she was a fluent German speaker. She was quite connected to the German world. So I think she, she was probably being honest that she, but, but it didn't mean that she didn't despise the Nazis. In the diary as well, she calls Hitler this kind of small artisan who had become his people's nemesis and cultural destroyer. She saw the Nazis as, as some awful thing that had happened mm. to Germany. And her job, what she called her snusk job, her sort of spy job, was to read through all the posts that went in and out of Sweden. And she was horrified by some of the sort of heart-rending letters between Jewish families some in Germany and some and you know to, to Jewish family members who were in Sweden about the treatment that they had at the hands of the Nazis and she was horrified by that and when she wrote that she didn't yet know about what had happened in the Holocaust but it was already clear that Jews were being treated in the most atrocious way and and she she was horrified by that so to think to, to call her a Nazi is absurd and I think that's one of the reasons that Sweden reacted like it was I mean interestingly that the, there weren't many people coming to the defense of Ingvar Kamprad IKEA's founder there was no one going well he wasn't a Nazi um so perhaps it, it's more difficult to argue for Ingvar Kamprad and also to a extent for uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, Becky, you looked at the passage in Berryman's book where he wrote about his self-loathing at having supported Hitler mm. until the Holocaust became known and you found some parallels with today's situation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so like the reason I found this passage at all is because I was trying to figure out which quotes that the Russians had used on their propaganda poster and they'd actually used quotes from this passage. They'd just edited them heavily so that They'd kind of taken all of the nuance out of it. And basically, these quotes said... He, he kind of spoke about how this eruption of immense energy... I, I loved it. I, he was at a rally in, in Weimar, um, a Hitler rally. He kind of... Bergman was speaking about this eruption of immense energy. He was shouting. He loved it. He put his arm out. So he said, Heil Hitler, all of this stuff. And then the second quote on this poster was like, I was given a present on my birthday. It was a picture of Hitler. It was hung above my bed. Uh, I loved him. And then that's where all the quotes from the Russians are on the Russian poster stop. But if you actually read the passage, it starts off with him explaining, oh, yes, and then when I was 16, I, went on an, I was sent to a family in Germany for six weeks. I lived with this 16-year-old who was cut out of, an, of a Nazi kind of, kind of uh, what was it he said? Cut out of a National Socialist propaganda broadsheet. And... He says, it's this whole thing of, like, he went to school, they had copies of Mein Kampf on the desks, he went to church, the passages they were reading weren't from the Bible, they were also from Mein Kampf. All of the kids in this family went to, like, were in the Hitler Jugend or, like, the, the girls' variant. And then he, he says this whole feeling of when he went to the rally, everyone was in these beautiful clothes and everything. And he, he kind of this whole propaganda thing and how he got caught up in the propaganda uh, yeah and then the the, the, pre the picture of Hitler was given to him by the family and they said they wanted him to learn to love Hitler as much as they did and they they hung it up on his wall and he did get caught up in it he was a fan of Hitler until he found out about the holocaust this is what he kind of says in the next passage which is what the Russians didn't talk about obviously well he's he specifically says the concentration camps he couldn't accept what his eyes were registering he said the pictures were pre-arranged propaganda lies and then he says here, as an exchange student, unprepared, I fell headlong into an atmosphere glowing with idealism and hero worship. The surface luster blinded me and I did not see the darkness. So he's kind of explaining that he was in, he was experienced this, this Nazi regime, all of this propaganda, all of this glory, rallies, hero worship kind of thing. 
And then when he finds out about what's happening, he says, oh, no, it's propaganda. And then when he finally kind of understands on a deeper level that it's actually happening, th- this whole propaganda regime kind of completely falls apart before his eyes. And I think that's probably what a lot of Russians either are experiencing or will experience in the future, hopefully, is this kind of, you've kind of fallen for this whole kind of glorious image of Putin and then maybe you find out about what's really happening in Ukraine and you find out that they're not saving them from the Nazis and that you think, oh my God, I've been supporting this regime and it was all a lie. So I just thought that was kind of ironic that the exact passage that they'd chosen to put on this poster saying that Bergman was a Nazi, which he was, he supported Hitler until he was 27, until the end of World War II. I think it's kind of ironic that the Russians chose that that kind of passage, which could also... If you read a little bit further on, it can kind of be twisted and it applies quite well to Putin himself and to what Russia's experiencing at the moment. It's also, let's remember, totally irrelevant to anything that's happening in Sweden today, um, to anything that has to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and anything to do with um, with, 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 with Swedish, uh, with, 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 the, with the direction of Swedish politics. But also, I mean, as, as I think you, try, you were saying earlier, in a way that the most shocking and absurd thing about the, the Russian poster isn't whether Astrid Lindgren or Ingrid Bergman or Ingvar Kamprad were Nazis. It's that, it's that Ukraine isn't on, <laughs> Ukraine aren't Nazis. Supporting <laughs> Ukraine is not supporting Nazis. If, if there's any any country that is behaving in the way that the Nazis did in the Second World War, it's Russia. Yeah. And, and, yes. and, and the, 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 the whole way of trying to push it, they're, they're trying to say, oh, Sweden is supporting the Nazis just like they did in the Second World War. But, 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 but we're not. The, the, the Ukrainians aren't the Nazis. Uh, if yeah. anyone's a fascist, it's the people with the Z symbols. Well, the whole thing is is completely yeah. This absurd. is all the, the Bergman quote, the quote that they're using to undermine Sweden. If you look at it, it undermines Russia. Like mm. It just completely underlines this whole thing that Russia is acting how Nazi Germany were. Precisely. That takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening and thank you as always to my guests, James Savage, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. And of course, this week's expert commentator, James Pamant. Don't forget to give us a rating or leave a review if you can and we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.